0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Chris. Great to have all of you here today. And we are in a series called Hello, My Name Is. Uh, Charlie mentioned at the very beginning uh, we're going to be using these, and so please keep a hold of this, and we'll get to these towards the end of the message. If you're a guest with us, you can always go to renaissancechurch.org, click on Messages, and you can uh, watch and listen to this entire series, our previous series, also from a smartphone or tablet. You can go to this link right here, uh, and uh, you can follow along with me, and that's also... Available throughout the week, uh, so if you get to Wednesday and you forget uh, something maybe I said or the the verses we looked at it 's all there for you as a resource well today we 're going to be looking at uh, very specifically probably uh, uh, the most important relationship other than our relationship with God that we can possess and that 's marriage and uh, i 've been doing a lot of thinking over the last weeks leading up to this entire message on marriage. And uh, this week I pulled up uh, one of uh, our wedding photos and I, I, I sat there and I looked at it. I was like, wow, I was so young. I know I probably looked 16 in that photo. I, I wasn't. I was, I was 24 and that's still young. But I looked at it, I'm like, I really look like I was in high school. It's like a prom picture, right? I'm like, and I didn't, I didn't even go to prom, but that's another story. Um, I bought a guitar instead. But... Um, But, you know, I'm looking at this picture, and I'm thinking about, well, it'll uh, be 16 years in November, and wow, what I didn't know about marriage 16 years ago, who I was 16 years ago compared to who I am today, so different, and who my wife, Kim, was 16 years ago, and who she is today, so different, What's happened within our marriage over the last 16 years has just been significant. You know, we, we've gone through the ups and downs of marriage. We've had difficult moments in our marriage. You know, um, be, being a pastor and, uh, a, and my wife being a pastor's wife, and now we have kids who are pastor kids. I tell you, you can study all the statistics on that, and it's not good. It's just not, right? It's... it's what, what the church and the emotional and spiritual load of leading the church does to families is catastrophic. And we've worked diligently worked through that because here's one of the things. I want my wife to love and respect me, not for Chris Strathaway pastor, but Chris Strathaway as her husband. And I want my kids to grow up loving the church, not because I'm the pastor, but because they love God. And here's what I know from all the st- statistics, pastors, kids start to hate the church because the church takes dad away from them and then they start hating God. And so we're navigating through that and I think we've done a great job. We can do, always do better, but we've done a great job but it's been one of those uh, pressures and stresses within our marriage. Uh, we, we, we lost a child and uh, all the statistics say that for couples that lose a child, 80 to 90% chance of divorce. that's staggering, right? So far, we're part of that 10 to 20% that haven't. And I think we've gone through the the real uh, dark seasons of our marriage when it comes to that. And so I look back over the last 16 years and so many moments, I'm like, we're doing great, but I realize how far we have to come. And here in this room, all of us, are going to fit into one of six kind of loose categories that I, uh, I wrote down this week because I think all of us are at a different stage. And so uh, uh, these are the six loose categories, and I'm sure there could be more, but I think uh, you'll find yourself in one of these kind of areas when it comes to this whole idea of marriage. The first three are, are really kind of positive life-giving. The next three are going to be pretty difficult. Uh, the first one is searching. Maybe you haven't been married before, and you're in that process of dating and trying to figure out who you want in a relationship, and uh, you're just at the very beginning stage. Or maybe uh, you're re-entering into the searching mode, and you realize that dating 15 or 20 years later is completely different. I've talked to several people that are now kind of uh, re themselves back into the dating world, and they're like, there's online dating and Match.com and eHarmony, and that world is so radically different than it was 20 years ago. So maybe you find yourself searching. Maybe searching is all about you're just trying to determine if you want to be married or if you want to be married again. And maybe that's the searching place for you, but you're kind of looking out going, what is next? What does this marriage thing look like for me? Uh, Maybe you're at the beginning, you know, the first few years, the honeymoon phase, when you're in love, and that person can do no wrong. Some of you, can you remember back to those days where your spouse could do no wrong? You thought it was cute if your husband left his underwear on the floor. You're like, oh, that's precious. You know, now it infuriates you, right? But you're kind of at the beginning, and you're trying to learn, and right, there's a lot of grace that extended. It's, it's a great, enjoy that season, enjoy it. And then... uh Maybe you find yourself in the thriving stage. Now, now let me, this, this, I want to be careful with this one. This doesn't mean that your marriage is perfect. It doesn't mean that you have it all figured out. It doesn't mean that, that you don't frustrate each other. It doesn't mean you don't scream at each other or talk loudly at each other. It doesn't mean any of those things. What thriving means is this. When you as a couple encounter issues, when you encounter friction, when you encounter tension you work through it. You identify the issues. You talk through those issues. And you're constantly tweaking the dials of marriage. Because what you don't want to do is leave an unresolved issue by itself and then all of a sudden it inflames and gets bigger. But when that happens you both jump on it together. That's thriving. It's working through those issues, constantly fine-tuning the dials of your marriage so that you keep moving forward and you keep growing together. And maybe that's your marriage right now. You could say, hey, not perfect. Yeah, there's some tension issues. We're working through those issues. But man, together we're working through it. It's thriving. Now, the next three uh, areas are difficult. And what I know is you might find yourself right in the middle of one of these three areas. Because if you're not thriving, it's stagnating. And maybe you find yourself right now in your marriage, and it's just stagnating. I mean, it's just literally, you know, you're not talking through those issues. Communication has come down to a minimum. There's a lot of friction underneath the surface, but you're just, there's no movement, no movement. And if you don't resolve that and start working through those issues and get it back to the thriving stage, it will quickly, and you feel this internally, it quickly goes to this imploding stage. Communication is shut down. And if there is communication, it's yelling and screaming and accusations. The feeling is gone. The I love yous are gone. You're cohabitating. Maybe for you, it's just all about trying to to keep it all together until the kids leave. And then it goes to ending. And maybe you find yourself there right now. Maybe the other spouse doesn't even know you're at that place. Or maybe you and your spouse, you're talking through it. And if you're you're a parent, we're going to talk about parenting more next week. I, I just want you to know, I have counseled more husbands and wives who come, come to me and they say, hey, our marriage is ending. And I ask, well, how's the kids, how are your kids doing? And it's usually been the context of junior high and high school kids, so a little older kids. Maybe they have a fourth or fifth grader as well. And I usually ask the question, well, how are your kids doing? And to the couple, they will say to me, well, they don't know yet. And I go, can I talk to your kids and ask them one question? Just one question. And usually they'll say yes, which shocks me because I tell them the question. I just want to ask them one question. How's, how's mom and dad's marriage? I don't lead them one way or the other. I don't bring up the divorce word at all. And to the child, you know what they say to me? It's bad. They're going to get divorced. We don't know when. Mom and dad's. Your kids are smart and intuitive and the walls speak in your house. They know. Again, we'll talk about this more next week. But here's what I want you to know. If you find yourself in this stagnating, imploding ending, it's not too late. And you might feel like, well, Chris, you don't know what's gone on in our marriage. Chris, you don't know what he did or she did or what he said or she said. You don't know. You're right, I don't know. But I want you to know, it's not too late. And with commitment and hard work and two people coming together, you can get back into this thriving area. It can be done. It can be. It's going to take a journey to get there. But I want you to know that just because you're at the ending stage, doesn't mean it can't be turned around and get back to the thriving stage. So Today, we're going to look at it. Actually, we're going to look at a couple verses, and they're not even the the quote-unquote marriage verses in the Bible. They're amazing relationship verses on how to have thriving relationships, and guess what a marriage is? Other than your relationship with God, it's the most important relationship you have. And so we're going to look at three different areas, kind of what creates some tension within marriages. Then we're going to look at these two verses that I think could radically shift uh, your marriage and get it back into that thriving stage or keep it in the thriving stage. And then what I did was uh, a couple weeks ago, I emailed out six couples that I really, really respect. Uh, both I respect their marriage, uh, but also how they parented because both of those are, are interconnected. And uh, I just asked them a simple question, and they emailed me back. And so I'm going to share uh, with you uh, from these six couples over 200 years of marriage wisdom. And I just figured that was better than my 16 years uh, of marriage wisdom. So that's, that's kind of where we're going today. Last week, we looked, about, looked at the, the brain and how our brain handles negative and positive experiences. And our brain handles both of those in vastly different ways. Our brain actively searches out negative experiences and shoves them into long-term memory. But our brain takes positive experiences, and we must wait 12 seconds, remember that? 12 seconds before that positive experience, that action, those words, gets shoved into long-term memory. And it was fascinating last weekend because after every service, someone walked up to me and gave me a compliment and then stared at me. And, uh, like, waiting the 12 seconds. And Saturday night when it happened, it caught me off guard as a person staring at me. I'm like, oh, what's going on? And then I realized, oh, yeah, I, I preached on the 12-second thing. I was prepared for Sunday. Uh, so 12 seconds. Well, researchers have taken all this, all this research. And what they've done is they, they uh, have started to apply it to relac- relationships. Uh, Daniel uh, Kahneman, who was an um, Israeli-American uh, psychologist, winner of the 2002 Nobel Memorial Prize in economics, what he's discovered is that our brain logs some 20,000 moments, experiences, every day. 20,000. So I'm 40, that's like 292 million for me in my lifetime. And your brain's logging all of these experiences. And what, what, what he classifies or describes as an experience is just a few seconds where you interact with some, someone or something or just by yourself. And it logs it in, 20,000. Researchers have also discovered that our brain, and this is uh, oversimplifying the research, but our brain literally keeps a scorecard. And our mood is largely based off of this scorecard of positive and negative experiences. And think back, brain's actively searching out negative, 12 seconds for positive. And so our mood is largely determined by the scorecard. Well, then another psychologist named John Gottman, he's done a ton of research specifically into marriage relationships in regards to these positive and negative experiences. And this is what he's discovered. He calls it the magic ratio, that there's this five to one ratio that within your marriage, if you have five positive experiences to every one negative experience, is going to be catalytic and shifting your marriage into this thriving category. You know, a positive experience could just be, you know, looking the eyes, I love you, uh, uh, picking up laundry from the floor, whatever that positive experience is, five of them to one negative. They did research. They, they pulled 700 uh, newlywed couples, and they just listened to a 15-minute chunk of their conversation. 700 newlyweds, 15 minutes. And they started logging these positive and negative uh, experiences between this couple, 15 minutes. And then they predicted whether or not they would be married or divorced. Ten years later, they came back. And based off of their predictions, off of a 15-minute conversation, using this 5-to-1 ratio, You know how accurate they were? 94%. Think about that, 94%. Just based off of 15 minutes of a couple's interactions. Now, what complicates this further is researchers have also gone into the English language. And they have found that out of all the emotional words that we use, 62% of them are negative and only 32% of them are positive. But they also have found that when it comes to the English language, that when when we use words to describe personality traits, 74%, 74% of our words describing someone's personality trait are negative. And we wonder why communication, especially in marriage, is so difficult, but so critical. So critical. So, how do we have a thriving marriage? Because it is possible. No matter where you find yourself, if you're at searching or ending, it's possible. And even if you find yourself in what you would consider a thriving marriage, we all know. If you're not intentional within that thriving marriage, if you just back off, guess what? Uh, It is so easy to happen. It's easy for it to shift from thriving to stagnating. So we're going to look at two verses that will give us not only great relationship advice, but marriage advice. This is what Paul writes. Do nothing. Here's that bar again. Last week, it was do not let any... Or get rid of all. The bar is high. We have to have the bar high. If not, we cut corners. He says, do nothing out of what selfish ambition or vain conceit. And Paul's going to set up something so completely countercultural. Both 2,000 years ago, but even in our culture today. And he's just saying, hey, do nothing out of yourself. We all We all have a problem with being me-centered. It's why when you encounter a friend or your spouse and they look at you weird or they uh, blow you off or they say something kind of sharp, you take it personally. Don't we do this? Like you have that interaction, you walk away, it's like, man, what did I do to them? Man, why were they rude with me? And you start thinking about what they did to you. How often do we stop and go, man, I wonder what's going on in their world today? Did they just get an email? Did they just get a phone call? What's going on? Because, man, that's not usually how they talk to me. That's not usually how they act to me. That's not usually how they... See, so many times we default to me and my needs and my interests and what's going on with me and not with what's going on in that person. Well, Paul goes on, he goes, rather... Rather, in humility. Now, this, was, this is the word that would have sent shockwaves through every church that received this letter and every person that read or heard this letter read to them. When Paul used this word, humility, it would have literally sucked the air out of the room going, What? Let me explain. About 350 years before this was written, Aristotle... Kind of made this declaration that humility was not a virtue to live up to. That humility was one of those, those components that he shoved way away, saying, No, 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 that's not a virtue. In fact, this is what he said With respect to self esteem, magnanimity is a mean between the excess of vanity and the deficiency of pusillanimity. Okay, And let me explain some of this. Basically, on one entire side, he says, guess what? Excess vanity or excess pride. Because in the Greek culture, you didn't want to have too much pride. Because if you have too much pride, you would start interfering with the gods. And when you interfered with the gods, the gods would strike you down. So excess pride was bad. But Aristotle also came out and said the highest virtue that you could esteem to was magnanimity. Great of soul, great of heart, great of mind. Be prideful. Just don't interfere with the gods. Be prideful. But just be careful to stop short because you, you don't want to interfere with the gods. You don't want to think that, the, that you are going to become godlike. Because once you interfere with the gods, they're going to strike you down. But magnanimity was the antithesis of pusillanimity, which says to be timid or to be a coward. And that was looked down upon because in the Greek culture, it was all about power and position and prestige. And to be great of mind and great of heart, the greatest virtue is magnanimity. So with that backdrop, Rome built their culture upon it. And it was... uh, Seneca, the Roman senator, who had absolute disregard for humility when he said, Know therefore, Serenus, that this perfect man, full of virtues, human and divine, remember, magnanimity, great of mind, great of heart, be prideful, right? Greatest virtue, full of virtues, human and divine can lose nothing. The walls which guard the wise man are safe both from flame and assault. They provide no means of entrance. Are lofty, impregnable, godlike. So this is the backdrop. This is the foundation of the culture. And Paul writes this rather in humility, that word humility, the adjective form of that word, Describes the mentality of a slave. So just picture yourself sitting there. The highest view for, uh, 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 virtue was magnanimity. Be prideful. Where humility was looked down upon. And then Paul pulls this word, this Greek word, and says, Have the mind of a slave? But it's also why in Ephesians chapter 5, as Paul is setting up how husbands and wives should relate to each other and how parents should parent their, their kids and how we should treat other people, As he sets up this whole way of thinking, he starts with this one emphatic thought. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, Paul lays this whole foundation about mutual submission, which is so countercultural, not only 2,000 years ago, but today. He says, out of reverence for Christ. And all we have to do is go back to this moment in the garden. When Jesus, God the Son, was begging God the Father to say, I don't want to not, not just die on the cross. It wasn't the physical death that Jesus didn't want to partake in. It was the fact that Jesus knew that when he got on the cross, the sins of the world would be laid upon him and it would create the separation from God the Father. And Jesus says, hey, God, please take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be separated from you just for this short amount of time. But that short amount of time is, is too much, too long. But then Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. You see the mutual submission, God the Son and God the Father together going, Hey, I don't want to, but I understand. I don't want to, but I get the point. I don't want to, but. And Paul writes this out of reverence for Christ. What Christ did for us, mutual submission. God, the son, God, the father, submit to each other. And you see, it's a foundation of marriages that thrive. Mutual submission, husband and wife coming together saying, okay, what are your needs? What are your interests? What's going on with you? How can I elevate you and lower me? How can I get outside of my selfish ambition and my vain conceit? And how can I start focusing on you? Paul goes on. He says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. right in the middle of a culture that says magnanimity was the highest virtue where it's all about self-pride, self-preservation, self-prestige, lifting yourself above everyone else. And where pusillanimity was the worst thing that you could be. Paul takes this slave word and says, That's what you are. Because when you look to God, and as God as your anchor, when God's light shines down upon you, you realize what God has done for you. And if God has done that for you, guess what we are to do to others? That's why in Matthew it says. So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. So with this as our backdrop, I emailed out these six couples, and uh, the question I I asked them was, uh, out of your 20 or 30 years of marriage... what are the three or four or five critical components that you discovered? And uh, what was fascinating is I started to receive these emails and I started to lay them side by side. I realized that basically they were all saying the same thing. It was the same advice. Come, uh, they came from radical different directions. They had different insights, different specifics. But what they were saying was all the same. And all of a sudden, four very specific kind of categories or components emerged from, from these six emails. And I realized that like in these four areas, they were all giving very specifics. And so then I just started sliding what they shared with me into these four areas. And I tell you, this, this, this is worth. Billions of dollars right here. The first uh, critical component that they all hit on was this whole idea of undeterred commitment. You know, divorce can't be in your vocabulary. Keep your marriage commitments. Parents, children have an amazing ability to divide and conquer, right, parents? Kids can work you, work you against your spouse. And they are masters at it. My, uh, my dad always said to me, son, son. That's going to be all next week, by the way. What well, my dad has said to me. Kids are born with all their intelligence. And one day, kids leave the house. Wait, wait, hopefully one day, the kids leave the house. I read this new study where they're all moving back in. I'm like, I hope that changes in 10 years. Like, no, you're supposed to go. Figure it out. Travel the world. I don't know. Find a camel. Ride it. Um, uh, that wasn't in the notes. Um, parents, don't, don't let, allow your, your, your kids to, to divide you. More on that next week. All of them said, say the words, I love you. There's this great moment in the musical Fiddler on the Roof where uh, Tevye comes to his wife, Golda, and um, Perchik has asked to marry uh, uh, one of their daughters, Hodel. And uh, there's this interchange between Tevye and Golda because Golda was like, well, he has nothing. And Tevye goes, but they have love. She's like, no, he has nothing to give her. And then they start singing, right, to, back and forth to each other. Do you love me, tevia sings. And Golda would respond by saying, oh, I've milked cows for you. And he goes, but do you love me? And, he, and she goes, you know, we've starved together and I've shared a bed with you. And he goes, but do you love me? And they're back and forth, back and forth. And then Tevye says, then you love me. And Golda says, I suppose I do. And Tevye says, and I suppose I love you too. And together they sing It doesn't change a thing, but even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. There's power in looking at your spouse in the eyes and just saying, I love you. And this isn't a once a week deal. This is every day throughout the day. There's a power to sending your wife, to sending your husband a simple text my wife and I do it all the time. You could look through all of our texts. Not really, because that'd get awkward, but you could. <laughs> trust me. Um, I promised my wife I'd be on my best behavior this weekend. But you'll see throughout all of our texts, a simple I love, and we don't even spell out you, because that takes too long. We just put the letter U. It's time management. <laughs> you have to be saying I love you. And your kids need to hear you say, I love you. And I get that maybe you're sitting there going, well, I grew up in a house where that was never said. Well, you can change that. There's some point where we have to get over how we were raised. More on that next week. You have to tell your spouse, I love you. 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 13 states that love never fails. And I tell you, if there's love in your marriage, even if you're in the, the imploding stage or ending stage, love never fails. And you might need to get counseling, you might need to sit down with someone, you might again, a ton of hard work, but when love never fails is the foundation of your marriage because you realize that God's love for you doesn't fail, you can make it back to thriving. Number two, a thriving friendship Uh, continue to cultivate a friendship. Uh, My wife and I, we we are just militant about our date days. I talk about it a lot. Why? Because I know for so many couples, they they don't date each other anymore. They just don't. Well, we're busy. Chris, my work schedule. Chris, my kids' schedule. I get it. I'm working 70 hours a week. I know, people are shocked. They just think I show up on on, on Saturday and Sundays, right? I get it. Um, There's a lot to this church world. And I'm cranking 70 hours. And I have kids in every sport and music you can imagine. And my wife and I are constantly trying to coordinate calendars and trying to figure out how we get kids here and there. And, you know, I'm at, Saturday, I'm at a 2 o'clock soccer game to run home, to jump in the shower, to get dressed to come here. After waking up at 6 o'clock Saturday morning and getting ready for Saturday night service, just fine tuning every point of the message. I get it. Fight for your dates, fight for it. And my wife and I will go, and sometimes we have in-depth conversations, and sometimes we go and we just stare at each other, right? Those are great moments. Like, we are like, uh, but we're together. One of my, love, uh, one of my wife's love, love languages, I'm the luckiest guy in the room, I promise you, one of her love languages is movies. She loves movies. And not just the girly, sappy love story movies, she loves action movies. Yeah! <laughs> it's awesome. And I know probably in the counseling world, they're like, that's horrible for a couple because you don't talk to each other in the movie theater. No, but we're together. We're together. And we just block out our Fridays until we, pick, we drop off the kids and then we pick up the kids. Whatever fits to the rhythm and context of your marriage, you've got to continue cultivating that friendship. Um, know your, your spouse's personality. Seriously, take a Myers-Briggs. Learn your, your spouse's personality. They are different than you. I promise that. How they see, how they interact with this world, how they process this world, they're different. Learn. We do this in the corporate world all the time. Everyone on our staff takes a Myers-Briggs. Everyone. Before we hire them, who are we getting? Why? We want to know. Do that with your spouse. Learn it. If you've been married 30 years, learn it. Okay, moving on. Differences, Uh, honor the differences between men and women. It's huge. Uh, Wives, us guys, I told my wife this. No, actually, she said this to me, and I affirmed her comment. She goes, are all guys really uh, just like junior high boys, but older? I'm like, yeah, I think you're right. Um, We're just different. Us guys are different. Uh, Ladies, you're different. Um, That's okay. Um, uh, Oh, this is great, so simple. Uh, Realize that your spouse isn't perfect. Seriously. Sometimes our expectation for our spouse is so high, it's almost at the level of God. But we don't want the same expectation from our spouse to us. Lower your expectation and realize they're not perfect. Give room for change. We change. All of us change over the the years. And if you're dating each other and you're fine-tuning that marriage, guess what? It's a lot easier to change with that person because you're with them as they're changing compared to all of a sudden 30 years later or 20 years later, your kids leave and you look at each other and you don't know each other anymore. Why? Because your lives become your kids. More of that next week. See how this all fits more next week? Uh, time together, quality, quantity. We talked about that time apart. This is huge. You need to have time apart. My wife allowed me this summer to uh, uh, go hiking um, Actually, I asked her, I said, hey, honey, a good friend of mine wants me to go hiking. And I thought I would at least get a couple days for her to ask me the follow-up question, where? But my wife is very uh, smart. And she uh, waited about two seconds. And she goes, well, where are you hiking? I'm like, oh, man, she asked me. And I said, Hawaii? (laughs) It was one of those moments. And uh, there's this famous, it's called the Kalalau Trail. So it's this 11-mile hike. We had 50-pound packs. There's a section uh, at mile 7 that literally the path was maybe a foot wide with a 1,000 foot of a rock face on one side, 1,000 foot down to the ocean. And I thought I was going to die. And, um, you know, it's just something she wouldn't want to do. And after she got over the shock of me going to Hawaii, even though I kept on saying, no, it's hiking, not Hawaii, hiking. It just happens to be in Kauai. Um She she made me promise to take her to Hawaii. I'm like, okay, score. We worked it out. But you need time apart. And um, this was another huge insight. Your spouse cannot and should not meet all your needs. Cannot and should not. Number three, transparent communication. Fight fair. And, And when someone's not fighting fair, call it out. My wife calls out to me all the time. Why? Because I have a gift of communication and what god can leverage for his good guess what can be leveraged for evil and my wife will call it out she'll just say you're not fighting fair you're not fighting fair keep talking to each other that's building that friendship never allow your children to disrespect your spouse and number 4 unrelenting forgiveness God is a God of restoration. And as, as we grasp God's forgiveness upon our life, it, it, it makes it so much easier to extend forgiveness to our spouse. Remember, your spouse isn't perfect. And the last thing, and I'll close. My parents grew up teaching marriage classes, and they would always talk about this whole illustration It was, I knew that that illustration would come in their email. I just knew it. I'm like, this illustration is going to come. But I got this illustration from someone else. And I think they've met once and said hi to each other. So there's not like a relationship between them, but they gave me the same illustration. And so I just loved it because I'm like, people on opposite ends, you know, on two different coasts gave the same uh, 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 illustration. It's just a simple triangle. And when God's at the top, and husband and wife are growing towards God. Guess what happens to their marriage as they both grow towards God together? They come together. I read this fascinating research, and they said that couples that go to church, here's the plug to go to church every week, by the way. Couples that go to church every week together, their chance of divorce goes from the national average around 50 to 55% down to under 30%. Just going to church together. Why? Why? because husband and wife are committed to growing to God together. And one way to do that, not the only way, one way is making church a commitment. And so you want to come together in your relationship? Each one of you have to be growing in your spiritual relationship separately, but yet together. And I get that some of you have a spouse that believes something totally different than you. And we provided a couple of resources on the notes page. And uh, there's a guy named Lee Strobel who was an atheist, and his wife became a Christ follower. And he's written about um, how his wife handled the tension because he literally mocked her. And then he's become a Christian. But uh, there's two resources. There's a book, um, and then there's a blog article he wrote called Mismatched Marriages. And if you're in a mismatched marriage, at least read the blog article. That will take you five minutes. The book will take you a little longer. But read that because it's great insights on how to handle two different faiths within your family context. So all this comes down to this. Two questions in the name badge on your name badge. Here's what I want you to write. Here we go. I want you to write your name. No, you don't have to put it on unless you want to. If you want to, go for it. But I want you to write your name because it's so easy for you to walk out of here and look at your spouse and go, here's the areas you need to change. And I want you to know you can't change your spouse. They can change themselves. You can't change them. The only person you can change is yourself. It's been the theme in this entire series. It's no different in marriage. And when you start working on you and what you need to do and how you need to change and how you need to serve. And here's the two questions I'm going to leave you with. The first one, I love this one. And this one, you just ask yourself, how would I like to be married to me? Seriously. If you were, if you were married to yourself, how would that feel? Second question, how are we doing in each of these four critical areas? All of this is on the notes. All four of those areas. How are you doing? Start working on those, those d- knobs of your, your marriage and fine-tuning it. Or maybe it's not even fine-tuning it. Maybe it's massive overhaul. Marriage is difficult. But it also can be one of the most life-giving relationships that we experience. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for our time together. And Lord, whether people find themselves in the searching uh, end of the spectrum or maybe they're in the ending or somewhere in between, Lord, I just pray for these relationships. And Lord, you have designed marriage. You designed marriage to be such a life-giving relationship. And Lord, I just pray specifically because you know what's going on. That the commitment will be to how can we have a thriving relationship. In your name I pray. Amen. God bless. Have an amazing week.